Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. You love God because he first loved you. We draw near before God because of his grace. We were not wise enough to be chosen. We were not righteous enough or rich enough. In fact, we were liars, thieves, adulterers, and idolaters. We were sinners. Yet God showed grace by setting his love upon you and marking you out for his own possession. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and so that you would be made new again. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. He has brought you into his family and adopted you as children. He's cleaned you up and washed you thoroughly inside and out. He's covered you with robes of righteousness and bedecked you as a glorious bride made ready for his son. He's even put his Holy Spirit within you to help you, guide you, convict you, to draw you back, to finish the work of making you holy as he is holy. All of this because he loves you, and all of it is undeserved. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sin, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. Beginning in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. We'll turn now to Joshua chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, 
Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for, they will, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord had given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And, we, and when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when Yahweh gives us this land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, Go up to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days, until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. And the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to, to which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then uh, we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And they departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Surely Yahweh has given all the land into our hands, and all the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us. We'll turn now to chapter 6, in verse 22. We read, And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out, to, in, spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house, and bring the woman and all she has out of there. As you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. And they also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and all that was in it, 
only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before Yahweh is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. We'll turn now to the back of your bulletin. We'll read Psalm 6 as a congregation. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In prayer. Father, we come to your word to hear from you. And we ask that you would speak to us and encourage us through the power of your word that goes out and does not return back empty. Help us to feast here today on your good words that build us up, that are implanted in us to give us life. We pray that you would do this for us today, this morning, in your presence. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I generally live under a rock when it comes to current events. but of course, the, this week's current events are uh, of a little larger magnitude. It's hard to, harder to ignore them. And so in thinking about what's going on in Ukraine, of course, if you read the articles, they're either reporting on what's happening or wondering what the final intent is. What is the, the goal of the invasion into Ukraine? And you read through them, and there's a lot of comparisons to World War II and um, a lot of fear that this is the first of this kind of event that the world thought was, was put behind. Of course, we know better where there's sin, sin will, sin will continue and all manner of wickedness will continue on. But in reading through those articles about wondering why, so their discussion is what is the goal of, of Vladimir Putin? And there's all kinds of theories, depending on whether he's just trying to protect his border, uh, to, create, to create states, to create a buffer. Um, others are looking at it more as protecting the Russian speakers. 
We can't know for sure what's in the mind of Vladimir Putin. One of the more interesting articles I read uh, was about the origins of the Russian Orthodox Church, and it began in Kiev. There was a baptism there, and um, so under this hypothesis, he's moving back, and, and you can see the religious overtones of what he says. He's protecting those that are part of the Russian Orthodox Church. The reason I, I bring this up, I, I think we can think on the opposite side of application for our text today, but understanding the, the end, the goal for which, for which anything is done, is important to understand how it's going to take place, what the, what, how the events will unfold, and what actions are necessary. And so without that, it's hard to have eyes to see, to have wisdom to know what, what needs to be done. In the book of James, we're coming to a text that everybody knows. James, James says things that are difficult for those of the Reformation to hear. Although, over time, I think we, we've heard the message of James that faith comes with works. God, in the end, of course, is the one that saves us, so we're not disputing that. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time today comparing what James says to what Paul says. Instead, what I want to do is see in context the admonition that James is calling us to. And I think it has something to do with this idea of the goal. The word telos or teleos is common in James, and it's not, it's not common just to James in the New Testament. It's, it's scattered throughout many of the epistles, and we'll, we'll see a little bit of that. But this has, has to do with what the object of faith is. So before we read chapter 2 again, I just want to discuss within James, and then looking a little further, what faith is. Because when James says Things like, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? We have to know what James is thinking of when he says faith. What is the faith that James calls us to and how does it issue forth in works for his readers and then for us today? What is he calling to us to through, through this letter that's written for our good? And so the first mention comes in, in the first chapter when James, he's writing of his purpose, and he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter all kinds of trials. Rejoice, welcome them, greet them from afar, because when those trials are coming towards you, you know that those trials are given for the testing of your faith, and when that faith is tested, it produces endurance, and endurance will have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing, And so you see those two words combined here in the beginning of James, that faith gives way to endurance, which gives way to the goal, the telos, the telios work for which faith is there in the first place. Sometimes we get confused. Faith is not the goal. When, when we place faith as the end goal, that has, that's produced a, a lot of uh, shallow Christianity. Faith is the beginning. Faith is the eyes set towards this goal for which Christ is bringing us unto. So faith in the midst of trial gives way to endurance, and endurance brings about the perfect work, the, the goal, the teleos, the end. And so in James, that, that is the picture that he's thinking about, the faith that issues forth. 
And so to give us a little bit more of a picture, you can, you can keep reading. If any of you lacks wisdom, so if you don't have this end, if you haven't achieved the goal yet of wisdom, and we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit more within the context of chapter 2, but if you lack wisdom for which we're headed with faith, ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let that man ask in faith without judgment, For the one who judges is like the surf of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. And let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And so he adds to this idea of faith, faith which is issuing forth in endurance under trial and producing the perfect work. He says, when you're not at the end, ask in faith. Ask in faith and God will give you wisdom. He'll drive you towards the end, the wisdom to see through to the the goal of the trial. And he contrasts that with doubting or judgment. And so the picture, as we've already discussed in previous weeks, is that when you ask in faith and God gives a trial, when he gives his word, there's two responses, either to say, yes, Lord, and amen, and welcome that trouble along with the word about how to endure it from afar, or to respond and say, no way. You've got it it wrong. That's not how we get to the goal. And of course, I think we can all see that when that's our response, when we judge God's response and we say, no, God didn't give this as, to use the words of of James, a a trial for my good, but instead a temptation so that I might fall, as we see in the subsequent verses, we're judging God and faith falls short because we don't have a vision of what God is producing. So flip back a few pages in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. And in defining faith, this is where many would start. The author of the Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 1, now faith, if we use the The King James translation, now faith is the essence of things hoped for. The conviction, the conviction, the evidence of things not seen. And so there's two elements in the author of Hebrews' definition of faith. They have to do with what's not yet and what's not seen. And so faith is the essence of things hoped for, so things that are coming. Faith is looking with vision into the future to what God is producing, to his goal, his, his teleos. Faith is taking God's, to, to use a bigger word, teleology, the word on the goal, the word on the end, to take that lens. And where faith meets the road is, the road is, is, is when our understanding, our our lens through which we see God's goal in the person and the work of Jesus, when that future that he is creating conflicts with what we see in the present. And that's what James is discussing. How, How do we go forward? Because under trial, there's an apparent contradiction of the goal which Jesus is driving us towards, or at least on the surface, it seems like there's an apparent contradiction. And so these two, two elements, the essence of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So faith 
reaches out into what's not yet and what's not seen and brings it into now. And I think we can all see that simply. When you have faith, you're reaching forward into the future that God has promised. You can have faith in all kinds of wrong things. That doesn't mean that it's good, godly, saving faith. There has to be substance behind that faith. We have faith in Jesus, in the future that he is promising. And the author of the Hebrews gives definition to that in this chapter, which we'll come back to in the midst of of James. But it takes that future and it grasps a hold of it and says it dictates what happens right now. So that faith defines my actions for now because God is not a pragmatic God. So the end, so the goal, does not justify the means. Instead, the goal defines the means. They have to be concomitant. So if Jesus' death is producing the goal, and we'll have to discuss what that goal is, it's in line with the end. And James is going to use that kind of language in chapter 2 when he says, don't hold your faith with an attitude of personal favoritism because they can't go together. We're looking towards the goal in which God is saving one body, one new man, new Adam in Christ, and there's no division. And so we can't go along the way with actions that reflect a division that cannot go with the future that God is making. So I'll speak more on that in a minute. But it reaches in both dimensions, outside of what we can see, because we're present tense people. And so God, according to Paul in Ephesians, he gives us this gift of faith to grasp a hold of his promise, what he says, founded and established in the person of Jesus. And by that faith, the author of Hebrews says that that's how men gain approval, But even here in Hebrews, the goal of that faith is moving forward. And so he says in the end that these these people of whom he's discussing, the Old Testament characters, they didn't achieve the end. They were not achieved the mature, the perfect, the teleos, apart from you. And so God is moving history forward. And it's that vision that we want to understand and see how James is calling us unto that faith, that kind of faith which must issue forth in works. And so we can ask why in just a minute. So let's pause, and I want to read beginning then in chapter 2. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord, or in our Lord of glory, with an an attitude of accepting face, with personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your synagogue with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention, you look upon the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made judgments among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling 
the royal law, the law of the king, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, if you accept face, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy boasts over judgment. What use is it, then, my brothers, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what profit is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being alone. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of works, faith was perfected. And scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteous righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now beginning in verse 14, James does begin a new section. You can see that because he, he defines each idea that he's presenting. He defines it with this, with this admonition that begins with a call to his brothers. Remember, Jacob is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel dispersed abroad. Those brothers are scattered. They're under trial. That context is important. The immediate context is also important. So in verses 14 through 26, just a quick glance can show you a structure that's helpful in thinking through the text. James gives us four evidences of what he's saying. And then he, he repeats himself in varied forms. So he, he adds to this idea, saying, what use is that faith that produces no works? And he goes on and in verse 17, after giving an example, some evidence, he says, even so, faith itself without works is dead. And then he gives another example, and then in verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And then the example of Abraham, and then in verse 24, you see a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he gives the example of Rahab the harlot before concluding, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so you have these five statements, and between them, between each statement, he gives an example. So the, the, he gives two grounded, rooted, positive historical examples. And at the end of the section, in the beginning, he gives two that are maybe more hypothetical examples, and they're negative examples. 
And so he wants us to take each of these examples and they add something to his argument. So we're going to walk through them and help uh, hopefully define then the, the goal for which faith is driving that helps produce these works and what it is when, what it means when he says that that kind of faith which does not produce these works cannot save. So this first section, this is how he begins it. What use is it? What profit is it? He's putting it in economic terms. What profit is it, my brothers, if a man says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save? And then he gives an example. If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, or literally naked. If they're naked and they have no daily food, and you say to them, go, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you don't give them what's necessary for the body, what use is that? The example's pretty clear, right? It, it, it's, it's easy to understand. If you have someone sitting in front of you, they're naked and they're hungry, and you say, be warmed and be filled, you use your words, to talk to them, but you give them nothing, it has no profit, it does nothing to change the situation. However, what's a little less clear is how, how this example is interacting with his statement. Because when you think about the profit, who is it profiting in this example? When you go to your brother or sister and they're naked and without food, and you say, be warmed and be filled, but give them nothing, who is the loser? Who doesn't profit? Is it the man who didn't have the works, or is it the man who didn't get the clothing and the food? It seems like the latter, but I think James means both. That faith that does not issue forth in food and clothing does nothing. It's of no profit to the one who possesses it, and it's of no profit to the one who's on the receiving end of, of that faith. He gives this example, and it's picking up on his concern from the first half of the chapter, and that's, that's why I wanted to read that. And last time when we discussed this first half, I didn't talk through the logic of verses 8 through 13, but it, it will help us understand the fullness of this example that James is giving. So if you go back to verse 8 in James chapter 2, he says, if... If you are fulfilling the royal law, the law of the king, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Keep that in your mind because he's going to use that phrase again in our section, but very differently. He says, if you do that, you're doing well. This is the law, law of the king, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. And so his first point in the premise is that the law commands, the, the law of the king commands compassion. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's embedded all through the law. You love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you see your neighbor in need, you're commanded to have compassion. You're commanded to have mercy. And, and there's all kinds of case law through the Old Testament that defines how to do this. When when you go to plow your field, you leave the corners unplowed. And those specific examples help us to think through what it means to have compassion. But his point is that if you fail to do this, you are a violator of the law. So then he adds to that in verse 10. 
Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point. Well, what point is he concerned about? Is it this one? Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point, the point where he has no mercy, no compassion, but instead falls to personal favoritism. That man is guilty of the whole law. And so he draws out an example. He says, do not commit adultery. Also, he said, do not commit murder. If you do commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become transgressors of the whole law. You, as a murderer, you've broken the law. I, Mr. Yandel was asking me last time, I connected murder to partiality. We are going to pick that thought up, so hold on. But it will come in chapter 4 when he talks about them as murders. So this is directly connected to this sin, but his logical point here is, if you fail to show compassion, if you fail to keep the law of the king in which you love your neighbor as yourself, you are a violator of the entire law. You've broken it. And so then he comes to the conclusion of that section. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by that law, the law of liberty, the law given to Israel on Mount Sinai as freedmen, speak and do as those who are judged under that law. And remember that that law says, you must have compassion. It says it in all kinds of commandments, but summarized by our Savior as the first and the second. The second greatest commandment is this, the kingly law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For judgment will be merciless. Judgment will have no compassion to the one who has shown no compassion. Compassion boasts. Compassion triumphs over judgment. So you have to take that and, and just swing those phrases around in your mind for a minute. Because this, this is a little hard for us to grasp. But logically, he says, look at the law. It commands compassion. The law judges. We, we know that from Paul. And the law will judge those who fail to have compassion. So who, does that, who is left at the end? Who escapes from under the judgment of the law? Only the compassionate. There is no way around it. And so his conclusion is that compassion triumphs over judgment. Because all who don't have it are in violation. They're sinners and Remember, he just went through the effort of explaining to us that if, if this is your only sin, if you're the rich young ruler and you have no compassion on the poor, so you hang on to your stuff, you're a violator of the entire law. And so only those that are of compassion will exist at the end, at the goal of the law. Mercy boasts over judgment. So then he takes and directly runs into his next point. What use is it then? So if this is true, if the end of the law is compassion, and we're not, we're not talking about the mechanism of how people arrive there yet, but if the end of the law is compassion, what use is it, my brothers, if a man says he has faith? So you believe in this law. You believe in the God who gave it. You believe in the righteousness of the God who gave it. You believe in the one who comes and can save you through it. But what use is it if he's got no works? Can that faith save? Well, that goes directly back to verses 12 and 13. Save from what? Save from the judgment of the law. It says that the law will not have mercy on the one who has shown no mercy. 
unless we think we can squirm our way out of that, remember what Jesus says. He says that to the one who does not forgive, I will not forgive. And in a passage we'll read later today, as much as you feed the, the poor and the clothe, clothe the naked, feed, feed the hungry, and as much as you've done it to the least of these, you, you've done it to me. And so he's saying, where we fail here, we're violators of it all. You're murderers, you're adulterers, under condemnation, can that faith save? So there's no profit in the faith that does not issue forth in the work of compassion. It does not bring you to the end. It does not bring you even through judgment. At least that's what he seems to be saying here. And so if you see that brother or sister who's naked and in need of daily food and you just speak to them. Now notice back in verse 12 he says, so speak and so act. There's, there's, there's two parts. And in James the speaking is parallel to faith. So we take the, the goal and we, we, we speak it. We, we speak our faith. We proclaim it. But he says, so speak and so act as those who are under the law of liberty. So if you just speak, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and that's the end, there is no profit. No profit for us, no profit for the naked and the hungry. And I think uh, how that works mechanistically will be filled out through the other examples. And so then he transitions in verse 17. He makes a conclusion. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Well, think about the example. If you don't feed the hungry, what happens to them? They die. But if faith, when it comes under crisis, when the decision point comes, will I obey or not? And later on in the book of James, he's going to say to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it. So when God presents you with both positive acts of goodness as well as the negative, don't do this, and, and we, we fall short, it's sin. And the progression of that sin kills faith. So we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. He's, he's talking about and urging us towards a living faith, an active faith, and just one more comment on that first example. If you think about the example itself, clothing and food, there's something that God specifically promises to provide for the orphan, for the widow, and for the alien. And those provisions are the responsibility of the husband for the wife in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we come to Matthew chapter 6, and he says, don't worry about what you wear or what you'll eat, because God provides but how does God provide? We don't worry about what we wear or what we eat, but we ought to be worried about what others wear and what others eat because we're called to provide for them as the body of Christ. So I think, I think that there's more, more, more application there because while it's, while it's maybe easy to walk away from just the poor in front of you, there's more. There's more places where perhaps we should consider we speak and do not act 
when James says the two go together, where, where we issue forth a word of this is what God wants, but we fail to help, to help our brothers achieve that end, are we not in violation of this same principle? So even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, so now he presents a hypothetical uh, argument. Someone may come and say, you have faith and I have works. And James says, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So he gives this second example, and it's an argument. It says, well, I have faith. You have works. The two are distinguished. They're separate. But James says, no, the works show forth the faith that lies behind them, the, the eyes to see the future. And it's true. right? We know this fundamentally, that we see people's goal, the faith for which they're striving, whether it's good faith, faith in not in God at all, but we see the end result that their eyes are set on by what they do. And so James gives this additional argument. You believe that God is one. That's the, the, the Shema of the Old Testament found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. You believe that God is one. You do well. Now, immediately after that, in chapter 6, verse 5, we have what Jesus calls the first and the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he then connects that in the Gospels to the second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those two go together. So he says, you believe, that the, you believe the Shema, God is one. That's great. You do well. Remember, I told you to keep that phrase in your mind back in verse 8. He says, if you love your neighbor as yourself and you keep this, the law of the king, you do well. But now he uses it somewhat more ironically. If you stop at God as one, you do well. That's good. But the demons also believe and shudder. So the demons, they see the goal, the teleos for which God is working, the end. They know who Jesus is. We know that from the Gospels in Mark chapter 1. It's the demons who say, you're Jesus of Nazareth. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. That phrase, by the way, is only picked up one other time. It's when Peter says it. You are the Holy One of God. And, and Jesus says, you... You say this well, but there's, there's devils amongst you. So the, the demons, and you could say Judas along with him, when we find out who the devil amongst them is, they can say, and it's not as if they're questioning the Shema or who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God. But where they disagree is they don't want the gold. They don't want what God is giving and so the only response can be they shudder. Their hearts melt because they can't, they can't disagree. Once you know, once your eyes are open, you can't disagree with what God is doing. He's more powerful than we are. He's more powerful than, than the demons. So they have their eyes open to the end, but still they refuse. They refuse to pursue that same end. They refuse to acknowledge the goodness of it. And so their response is shuddering. And so James says that kind of faith, which stops with seeing the end, is not sufficient. It's not faith. 
It, it, it has an element of belief in which you see through the cloud to the end, but it's not the faith of Hebrews chapter 11. So flip back a few pages just quickly. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, they greeted them, the same as we're called to greet the trouble in James. Having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth, they were aliens, just like the readers of James. For those who say such a thing make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So in, in this picture of faith, in reminiscing about those of old who had it, the author of the Hebrews says that they had faith. They wanted what God was giving. God was preparing a city for them, and that's exactly what Abraham wanted. He wanted that city. And so his actions of leaving, of becoming an alien and stranger, of wandering about in the land, were concomitant with that faith. He wanted the promise. And therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God because he had prepared a city for them, because they wanted the thing, the very promise which God was giving them. That is faith. And that is faith that issues forth in action. The demons, they see that, the promise of God, but their response is to shudder. So moving on, he says, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, you empty-headed man, that faith without works is useless? And he gives another example. Was not Abraham our father justified, vindicated by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. It was brought to its goal. And scripture was fulfilled, which says that Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So we have this example, and... If you would, keep your finger in James, but let's flip back to Genesis 22. We have this example of Abraham. And the quotation there is not, as you may recognize, out of Genesis chapter 22, but the famous one that Paul uses out of Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But he quotes it here and he says it was fulfilled in Genesis 22 when God called Abraham to sacrifice his son. On the altar, and Abraham dutifully went up to Mount Moriah with Isaac, his son, his one and only begotten son, given to him by God, and he obeyed. And God says, so in Genesis chapter 22, I'm not going to read the whole story, but looking at verse 16. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven after having given the ram from the thicket. And he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He gives the covenant promises again and he says, Because... 
Because you have obeyed me, because you have not withheld your son, the son which God gave him, but because you have not withheld your son, he gives again the covenant blessings, the same ones he gave back in chapter 15, the ones that began in, in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, the author of James says, now these are fulfilled. I will greatly bless you. I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. The nations are beginning to come forth, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now it came about after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, and Buz his brother, and Kemuel the father of Aram, and Hesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidluf, and Bethuel, and Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine, whose name was Reuma, also bore Teba, and, and Gaham, and Tehash, and Micah. So God calls Abraham to give up his son Isaac. We know why he does it, because the author of the Hebrews clarifies it for us. It says because he believed in the God who gives life from the dead. He believed that God would keep his promise. So he had his eyes set on the goal, which God had already given him. He had faith. And God had already reckoned that faith unto him as righteousness. But now that faith issues forth in work. And what I want you to notice is the result of that work. God both, again, gives the covenant promises, but now there's fulfillment in them. So immediately after this event, what comes next is Nahor has 12 sons. There's a nation coming forth. The nations are blessed because of what you've done. In context, those two things go together. Isaac dies as a type, and a nation is raised up, but not just any nation you notice that in that one bullet point he gives, and Rebekah was born. So Abraham believes, and the promise flows forth. It's fulfilled. So the bride for the seed is born out of Abraham's faith. That's how God connects them. And the promise moves forward. So in the next chapter, Sarah dies, and Rebekah becomes the new wife to bear the seed. This is how God works. He sets our eyes through faith on what he's producing, and then he produces that very thing through calling us unto works. And so you think about in the church, God calls us unto good works. He brings into the bride more and more. He adds unto the church because he's already given us the gift of Faith. And so we go forth and we clothe the naked and feed the hungry and provide for all manner of those who are in need and the bride is born. Now, back in James chapter 2, he says, Scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then he, he says what it was fulfilled unto. And he was called the friend of God. So James wants us to notice that because it's not in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham was not called the friend of God then. He was called the friend of God retrospectively by Jehoshaphat, as we'll find out shortly in 2 Chronicles, and by Isaiah in Isaiah 41. So in, in thinking through 
the battles upcoming for Israel. And in thinking through in Isaiah 41, God's revelation of how he was going to provide for his people in the midst of captivity before that captivity even began. These authors, the speakers, say Abraham was a friend of God. And James takes that and he says, at least in part, that's the telos. To be called the friend of God. So uh, hopefully this draws to your mind what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. You are my friends, Jesus says. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So when faith issues forth and works, Jesus says, you are my friends. And what makes a friend a friend? He says, I have not hidden anything from you. I've revealed it all to you. I've given you the goal. I've given you more than you need to know because you are my friend. Now, within the book of James, remember, we have two examples at the end. The example of Job and the example of Elijah. And both of their stories end with this same concept. And that the whirlwind God, the God of the storm and the tempest, who gives trial for the purpose of maturation of faith into works, comes and he meets with these men in that whirlwind. He beckons them in. They are friends of God. And so all of our actions coming out of faith have to be concomitant with this goal. We are friends of God. He tells us, he shares with us, he invites us. Jesus says that through him we're called into his presence. We have access to pray and he'll give us what we pray for. And what does that mean? Well, if that's at least part, and the author of the Hebrews adds to that, right? So, so each author, as they think about the, the teleos of faith or, or the teleos of the law, the goal for which God is pulling us toward, the future which we're hanging on to, it is friendship with God. It is bring, being brought fully into his presence. It is the heavenly kingdom the city built by God, as the author of the Hebrews says. And so when we act and we're holding on to that, that promise, that future, that means that every action falls. It falls in line with producing that goal. God, the God of compassion and mercy, is calling us into his whirlwind to be with him to be, have revelation which our minds can barely even begin to handle. And so when we think about the, the present day crisis, we think about it differently. We're called to think about it differently through eyes of faith. So sometimes we call this worldview, but what it is, is we're taking the perspective of our archaeology, our beginning, as the Hebrews author says, we, by, the, by faith we understand that the worlds were made without hands. By faith, we know that what's visible was made out of what's invisible. But by faith, we're reaching forward to the city that God has promising, to the friendship with God in his presence, being children in his household, that he's begun to deliver on those promises. And when he brings the crisis, the trouble, we welcome it with joy because we know that that trouble is given by God to push us forward into this goal of being in his house one with him, friends with the Most High God. You see that a man is vindicated by works. 
and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also vindicated by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so we have this fourth example. And immediately, if you think about these two, Abraham and Rahab, there is a, a similarity in the purpose for which he brings them forward. But of course, there's an utter contrast in their beginning and in, 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 in their arche. Abraham is specifically called the father. Abraham, our father. And Rahab is called the harlot. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum, and yet the lesson is the same. We can, we can derive from it more because he's adding to his evidence what he wants us to hear, the admonition for once, what he wants us to do. Do not hold your faith with an attitude of personal favoritism. Do not give way in the midst of trouble to blaming God for your trouble as if he's going to bring you to an unfortunate end. Instead, rejoice. Rejoice because we see Abraham, we saw when he has faith that issues forth in work, we see the end result. And the same thing with Rahab. Whether you start off as Abraham the father, the one who God gives his great and glorious covenant to, or whether you start off as Rahab the harlot, the Canaanite who has no future. Still, when the crisis came and the hearts of the people melted, Rahab the harlot believed. And she believed in what God was promising. And so Rahab the harlot became an Israelite. She did it when she believed, when she had faith that issued forth into one specific action. She hid those two men. She brought them into her house. She hid them. She received them. And it's a word that James uses in chapter 1. You receive the word implanted. It's parallel then to the faith that comes from receiving the word. She had heard the word that Israel was marching, that the God, the God of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus was marching into her land, into her city. And she heard and she said, our hearts melt, but I will align myself with these people and with this God and I'll do it this way, by letting those two men out by another way. And we read in that story of Joshua, there's so many wonderful things to be learned there, but we read that she and her household were saved. So that's the, the, one of the last things I want to bring up because we're running out of time here. With Abraham, remember, it was his faith that issued forth in bringing Isaac to the altar. And through that, literally in Genesis, the bride comes and the promise moves forward. Well, with Rahab, we see something similar. She believes and her household is saved. She's brought into the people of Israel. We know that she marries Salmon. She becomes the, the great, great, great grandmother of our Savior Jesus in the line that issues forth David. She completely is exchanged. And we won't go into this much today, but in the story of Joshua, there's a reverse exchangeal in that Achan, Achan who's of the same lineage through Tamar and Judah as Salmon is, he becomes a Canaanite and he's destroyed utterly because his faith issues forth action like the Canaanites. His 
goal, the faith for which he was driving, was money. So he hid, if you remember, silver and gold and clothes. And he and his household were destroyed utterly. And so God, by his gift of faith, brings forth works that show forth the righteousness which he already declared. Right? So for Abraham, we, we get that added so that we understand what God is doing. He declares us righteous, those of faith. But then that faith issues forth and works, and it's shown both for God and for all mankind to see that indeed this God has given this person the gift of faith. He's bringing them into his household because now they look like him. They are friends of God. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What James is calling us to is a living and active faith, not one that's dead. And that faith is animated. It's pushed forward, progressed into the next phase through obeying our Savior. So when he gives us that trouble, that crisis, and of course, we're, we're looking at them. We see brothers and sisters in need. What action falls in line with the perfect end which, for which Christ is maturing us? What do we do? In the church in James, they're fraught by schisms, divisions, and trouble. In the midst of their, their scattering and their economic trouble, there's division between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And ultimately, again, with, with the Greeks eventually, too. But James says, pay no attention to that. Pay no attention to the divisions between rich and poor because this is what Jesus bought us for. And so take a hold with faith of the things which are hoped for, the promises which he gives, and your faith will be brought to its perfect result so that you are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you would, let's pray. Father, we come before you, and like Rahab, we know we could not be in your family without the work of our Savior. Even the faith that we have is a gift from God, as Paul reminds us. And yet we also confess that you are good in having plotted out good works for us to walk in. Lord, help us with eyes to see, to hold on to your promises, and to walk in those good works. To have that faith vindicated to show that you are the good God who's given us all good things. Every perfect and good gift that has come down from you is resulting in a great and a glorious city who's built up of men and women who are now your children. Lord, help us to be people of compassion, to not fall short in this regard, knowing that the faith which we hold on to, the person, the work of Jesus, his death shows us what it means, what the future is. It's not just a stopping point upon the way, but we are children who give up for one another, and in that giving there's blessing. So I pray that you would do that. Fill us up with your spirit. Make us people of living faith today. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.